Hello and welcome back to the KI Prime podcast. My name is Alina Jenkins and in this episode, we're speaking to Dr. Lara Vapio. Lara completed her PhD in 2007 at the University of Waterloo in Canada in collaboration with the Wilson Centre for Research and Education at the University of Toronto. Her award-winning PhD research investigated the impact of electronic health records on medical trainee socialisation. Lara spent the first six years of her career with the Faculty of Medicine at the University University of Ottawa and the Academy for Innovation in Medical Education. And in 2013, Lara moved to Washington, D.C. in the U.S. to work with the Uniformed Services University of the Health Sciences. She was a founding member of the University Center for Health Professions Education. And Lara is internationally recognized for her expertise in qualitative research methods and methodologies and in social science and humanities theories. And her research has won national and international awards. Lara, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. You're welcome. There's so many things I want to speak about. Just doing that introduction, I'm thinking, where do we start? But I think what I'd really like to start is perhaps why you're here and your area of research that you are hoping to pursue further. Sure. So, I'm very fortunate to have the opportunity to be here with such a wonderful cohort of thoughtful and uh, internationally minded individuals. The work that I'm doing is really around ideology. I look at the assumptions and the beliefs that we hold and how those ways of thinking shape what we do. Uh, to do that kind of work, I've looked at everything from what we do in terms of our philosophies of science to the reasons we hold the methods we do to the way healthcare teams work together. And so Together, for me, that's kind of the next direction I want to head into. Mm. So it, it sounds like it's, you're talking about ideology, it's about how people think, how we communicate with each other, how we understand each other. Yeah. And and the ideas that, that not only unite us, but sometimes become the source of tensions because uh, our ideologies are not always coherent. They don't always align nicely. So sometimes we have these moments of incommensurability, of, of conflict, when one thing we're being asked to do is in direct conflict with something else we're being asked to do. Uh, I can give you an example. A, a very good friend of mine gave me the story of when she was a third year resident and she was in charge on the ward and she had three incredibly ill patients. And one of the things that we teach our trainees to do is to be empathetic and to really care and engage with these patients. And then the physician who was working in the ICU came down and looked at these three patients as three individuals for whom there was only one bed. And then went through a very, what she would consider cold calculus of the chances of someone surviving versus this person and that person. And for her, that was a real moment of ideological tension because the ICU physician was doing what he needed to do, which was think about resources and survival rates. And she was trying to also be empathetic, which is something else we asked them to do. And in that moment, our ideology is working against itself. So yeah, those kinds of things. Yeah. Uh, it's, I'm fascinated that you said about trying to teach people empathy. Right, yeah. <laughs> <Do> you, <laughs> yeah. Some people, that is what that is. Yeah. Some people are naturally empathic. And of course, we hope in the world of medicine, of medical research, right. is that empathy is there. Do you think you can teach it? Where are your challenges where it comes to somebody who perhaps 
that's not natural for them. It's not part right. of their, their personality. Right. I think one of the things that's uh, great about medical education is that there are all kinds of different kinds of physicians. And that means that there's all different ways of being a successful MD. I, I do believe empathy is something you can learn, you can develop. Uh, but there are some aspects of medicine where that that contact, that empathy, that sympathy, that connectedness with the patient is perhaps less foregrounded than in other professions. So if these, it just means that in, in healthcare and in medical education, there's lots of places where we can be exactly who we are. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Where are you, if you think about where you are at the moment with your research, mm -hmm. Where do you want to take it? Where are where are the goals? Um, that might that might be a little bit 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 too big, but I guess that's why we're here yeah. as well, isn't it? To so think yeah. where where could this lead? What what are you hoping to achieve? One of the things I would very much like to do is to help uh, our community think about health professions education and medical education in different contexts. You know, in so many ways. MedEd is a fascinating space because we built it. None of this naturally occurred. We built the structures, the processes, the, the, the standards we asked people to uphold. It also means we can change our minds. And so when we take that system or when we look at health professions education and we try to implement it somewhere else, it needs to shift and accommodate a new ideology. And so the, for me, one of the things I'd very much like to start to think about are those moments of conflict and ideology, how we address them. I don't think we can resolve them, but we can probably manage them. And then think about when we take it somewhere else, when the system is in a different place, or if we try to learn from a different system and import it. When those ideologies don't align, how do we reconstruct our work, to our built environment? I know you've done a lot, a lot of work, Lara, yep. on failure in health professions, education <laughs> and scholarship. And I, I'm kind of sort of sensing that this is tied in with that because... To make changes, you have to perhaps admit that things aren't working, that there's been failures. And I know that's really hard for many people. It is. I think one of the things that, especially in, uh, in, in the healthcare setting, uh, admitting mistake can be dangerous for some, for some yeah. people. And in different contexts, admitting a mistake can be a question of accountability in a very real and, and uh, influential kind of way. But I would love to think that our failures are the steps towards new insights and new understanding. And it's if we leave our mistakes locked up in a box because we're embarrassed about them, then nobody learns from them. It's when we open up that box and share what we learned that hopefully we have just shortcutted somebody else's process so that when they come to that same situation, they're not making the same mistakes we are. Yeah. It's also tied in as well, isn't it, with uh, imposter syndrome. And <laughs> I, was, I was looking a bit before we, before we came here yeah. and I was doing some research into into everything that you've been doing, which so I spent some time. <laughs> um, but you, you wrote you, you wrote something and you, you've done uh, talks about this as well around growth mindset, yeah. fixed mindset, <gasps> tying into imposter syndrome as well. Yeah. So what, what are your thoughts on that? Growth mindset, I think it's uh, Carol Dweck uh, brought that theory into being and it's such an, uh, an important piece for anyone who's in a profession where you continually need to refine and develop your expertise. It's at the bottom of it all. It's, you know, I'm good at this, but I'm, you know, there's always more. There's always something else to be learning. There's another way to evolve. But as soon as you adopt that growth mindset, you also have to recognize that you're fallible that you're making mistakes and that things aren't always going to go well. And in, I think especially in a space 
like healthcare, where other people's lives are on the line, that it's personally and professionally a profound moment to make a mistake and to have that sense of, be it imposter syndrome, that I don't belong here, or shame, that there's something wrong with me, that those those emotions are part of any educational journey or they can be part of an educational journey. And if we don't acknowledge that, then that's a problem. Yeah. yeah. And another thing I wanted to, to, to ask you as well is, is about sort of mentorship. Yep. And this is, this is why I love working in, with you in, in this, in this <laughs> field of medical education research. I don't think I've ever come across a, a field or an area where people are so supportive of each other. Yeah. And so thinking about how you got here yep. today, were there some people <laughs> who were who were key yes. who who you can think back and say if it wasn't for them, I don't know that I would be here today. Absolutely. So I was ever so fortunate uh, that I didn't quit my PhD. I was uh I was going through my PhD which is in the Department of English at the time and I didn't like what I was doing. I was, uh, this was, this didn't work for me. There were wonderful people in my uh, department who were doing entire thesis bodies of work on the works of Shakespeare. And that didn't work for, uh, that it just felt too removed from everyday life. So I was ready to quit until my supervisor introduced me to Lorelai Lingard. And uh, I went to the Wilson Center to work with Lorelai. And the the story, essentially, she invited me for three days. I left three years later uh, because I found a place. I found a home where the ways I was asking questions and the kinds of things that I was thinking about were valued and encouraged. So uh, Lorelai was extremely influential. And so was Brian Hodges. Um, he was one of the first people who actually saw what I was that I was talking about and thinking about and suggested that this was really important work. And that was really validating. That was really a moment in my career when I thought, maybe this is home. Maybe this is where I belong. Uh, and there was a third person at the Wilson Center. His name is Glenn Regeer. And to this day, Glenn's one of my mentors. We have regular conversations. Uh, to this day, when it's, you know, when we first started meeting, uh, he would talk for an hour. I would take copious notes and then I'd go back to my desk and I'd spend hours trying to figure out what we were talking about just to understand the conversation. We still do that to this day. Uh, he talks, I write, and then I go away and I think about it, <laughs> even though I'm a full professor. But the, that's the community that I grew up in. And so for one of the things that's really important to me is to pay it forward. Mm -hmm. So uh, I try to provide support to all of the individuals I can. I always tell people that I will always give you an hour of my time. Yeah. Always. It's just an hour of my time. It's not that mm -hmm. precious in the sense that if I can help you, I'm going to do that. Like, of course, I'm going to do that. So, yeah, mentoring others and trying to take what I was given and give it to others, if I can do that, that's that's a good career. That's yeah. a career goal right there. Yeah. And, and of course, you know, Brian and Glenn and Lorelai, all on last season's yep. podcast. Fascinating for me to speak to them. And actually, just thinking about Lorelai, because I remember talking to her about language and yes. the importance of yeah. language. And I just thinking if you're trying to change ideologies it's sort of the focus on language and the language that we use and perhaps the language that we're using now, how that might be unhelpful or could create conflict. So is that, is that a focus as well? Absolutely. So even going back to your, the, your question about Carol Dweck's growth mindset, yeah. it's all the difference to say, I can't do this versus I can't do this yet. And one word makes all the difference. And so language very much plays into this, especially when we start to think about the ways we present ourselves or the way we face challenges. Because if you 
walk into that situation where perhaps things didn't go well and accept it as a failure, then that does something to you that that has impact on the person. But if you take it and accept it as something I'm not good at yet, then it's a whole other thing. So the language we use really does shape the way we think about things. Mm. If you're thinking about the sort of the implications and the impact of your research moving forward, are there any stumbling points right now? Are there any challenges that you're thinking, what do I do do here? Sure. I think one of the things that I I fear, especially in the North American context that we don't talk about often, um, although I think we can see it in Europe as well, is the ways in which the structures we have for funding healthcare have a really significant impact on the people who work in there and the people who are receiving care in those same systems. In North America, it's not unusual to have, you know, you have 10, 10 minutes a patient. And that's really hard to have patient-centered care in a 10-minute window. Heaven forbid they have three questions, right? You got time for one. So now you're picking the one you're going to talk about. I think our systems also propagate ideology. We, you know, schools are the system through which we teach people our values, our attitudes, our beliefs. And so if we're not critical of our systems and the structures that we uphold, if we don't think about those, then very quickly we just accept it as normal, as natural, and that it should be that way. So one of the things I I do find myself concerned with is that I'm actually asking people to critically look at the things that they hold to be true because and as soon as you ask somebody to question what's normal, it usually doesn't go really well right away. But, you know, hopefully over time. <laughs> <laughs> One of the fascinating things as well about working with with the fellows from last time yeah. and, and in 2022 is we've got people from all over the world. Yeah. So when you're looking at sort of changing ideology, do you look at it from a global perspective and how that's perceived through different cultural lenses? So I'm of a firm belief that it's very hard for us to see our own ideology because it's what we assume to be true. So in my mind, the best way to see ideology is to ask who isn't here, who is not part of this conversation right now, be it in terms of gender identity or cultural, racial, ethnicities, in terms of abilities and disabilities, physical who isn't in this space helping to make decisions? I think that's one of the most important things we can do is to get out of the way and give power to those individuals who aren't there now because they can see what we assume to be true. They can see the things that we've stopped seeing. One of the, one of the sayings that really disturbs me in, in when we talk about um, health professions education, because there's a lot of focus on innovation. People want to do things new and it's exciting. We'll change that. One of the things that people often say, but why would we do that? It, it, it's not broken. It works. If it ain't broke, don't fix it. And for me, the, the point is, well, it's not broken for you. You made it in, but there is a whole other set of categories of people who aren't here. So it may not be broken for you, but it's broken for somebody. So let's get them here. Mm. Which actually leads me to something that, that I wanted to talk to you about yeah. is, is about finding your voice, finding your voice as a researcher. So what would be your advice for people, you know, just coming, coming into this, into, into their career? How do you overcome all the things we've talked about so far, you know, kind of inner critic and, and find your voice? One of the things that I would uh, say to my graduate students often is to, to hold on to who you are. The the things that make you unique in many academic settings, they'll tell you those are the very things you have to try to get rid of because there, there's a there's a tone to an academic 
paper. There's a, a way we present ourselves. And I would like to believe that academia is evolving. And so you can be exactly as unique and subjective as you are, which means telling the story in your own voice. Now, I'll be the first to admit that that also means sometimes you're going to hear reviewers say, this isn't an academic paper or, but you know, when <laughs> I have uh, manuscripts that start with a joke, I've cited Beyonce. So I feel that it's, it's wholly possible to do it if you just hold true to who you are. Yeah. Do you, do you think that? could become the norm because you're right. I think people expect a certain thing yep. from an academic paper. Um, I, I mean, I love that because I think when <laughs> something's different, it makes me go, oh, what's well, that's that? interesting. Yeah. Exactly, exactly. Yeah. Do you think Do you think that could become more commonplace? Is, is that what you're hoping? I do think it can become more commonplace. I hope it becomes a, a new standard. But again, it will take some very brave individuals who are in leadership positions right now to say the way we've been doing it has worked well, but now we need to bring in a different lens. We have to bring the people who aren't here and the people who aren't here might want to cite Beyonce instead of this other academic article. And that's okay. Yeah. Right? There's value there. It's, I like to think of it as, you know, choices aren't right or wrong in that sense. Mm -hmm. They're just choices. So why don't we try something else? I wanted to talk to you about your new job because, yes. uh, you know, we, we, <laughs> I, I'm just amazed. How do you do all of this, Lara? With ABC? So you've got a new job um, at the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Is that right? Tell, tell yeah. me about that. Yeah. So I've, uh, I'm just moving over. I, I start in a few weeks at uh, the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia and my, that's my clinical appointment. My academic appointment is at the University of Pennsylvania. And, uh, you know, it's a dream come true. It really is to have the opportunity. I, I come from a small town in Northern Ontario and now, I'm hired by an Ivy League university. It, it it never ceases to just blow my mind when I wake up in the morning and look at my husband. I'm like, look at what I'm doing. But um, <laughs> the at this at at the Children's Hospital, uh, they have taken education very seriously, and they want to improve the educational processes for the residents and faculty members to try to make it the best academic teaching hospital it can be. And when you have a community that's ready, it's the best place to work because they just want to try and do and engage. And there's all kinds of support for it in the community. So it's uh, it's a fascinating and exciting new opportunity for me. I'm so excited for you, Laura. And Thanks. I'm just interested on your thoughts of how do you juggle? How do you juggle your area of research and your your job? Because some people are lucky enough that, that I'm speaking to, to be full-time researchers. Yeah. But for others, it's, well, I, you know, I, I've, I've got to go and right. do the, the other job as well. Right. So how, how do you manage all of that? I think the other piece we have to add in there is that, you know, most of us have families. Yes. Right. And so uh, one of the things I think is really important is um, I, when I talk to my, my mentees, I talk about big fat lines. You have to draw, draw big fat lines around the, your priorities so that you know when you cross them, because the killer is when you accidentally itch over it because it's, oh, it's just one more project or it's just one more email. No, no, no. I'm done at this o'clock. And at this o'clock, I turn into mom. Now, it takes me a while to turn into mom, but that's when <laughs> there has to be a big, there has to be a fat line when you know that this is now I'm going to go into this mode of my life or now I'm going to go into that mode of, of life. And uh, it's not that it works perfectly all the time, but at least I know if I'm breaking my own sort of expectations. And in, in terms of balance, I think it's incredibly important that we consistently recognize that you're never going to be balanced in the day, right? On this day, I am, I am, I'm not, I'm, I'm in Sweden. I'm not with my kids. I'm not with my family. I'm, I'm doing this full time, which means in, at some point down the road, there will be 
mom days and wife days. There will be Lara days too, but there's, it's, it, I don't try to balance on the day. I try to balance in overarching longer time frame because that's achievable. I don't think I could do it in a day. Yeah. Good advice. And, and before you go, Laura, I'm, I'm yeah. asking everybody about being here mm-hmm. as a KI Prime Fellow and what that means to you and what you're, I mean, we're still, we're just on day one. We, we all met yesterday. Yeah. But what are you hoping to get out of these three days? Why is it, why is it important to you? I think one of the things that academics don't get often is you don't get to hear how the people, how the world receives your work. We put all this work out there and, you know, you might get cited, but it's, it's very much, uh, it can feel like you're screaming into the void. And then to have something like the KI fellowship to come and say that they recognize the work that you're doing and to see the value in it. It's very uh, reassuring that maybe, okay, maybe I'm doing something that's worthwhile in terms of what I'm hoping to get out of this. I hope to grow my community. But more than that, I, I hope to be able to truly take the time to meet the goals that the fellowship has set in front of us. You know, I, I, I'll be honest, I've never thought about my entire body of work and what holds it together. Uh, sometimes I think it's a wish and a prayer that holds it together. But, you know, but the longer I think about it, actually, there are connecting ideas and those sorts of things. So I'm really hoping to achieve the goals that the KI fellowship puts out in front of us because they're lofty goals, but they're important goals. And uh, if I can do that and make a few friends along the way, then it's a success. I like that bit at the end about making yeah, friends. friends. <laughs> I, think, yeah, I, I think that will happen. Laura, it's just really great to speak to you. Thank, thank you, you for your time. Lovely to meet you. And thank you to everybody listening at home. We'll be back soon with another episode from the KI Prime Fellows 2022.